Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. What was your favorite book as a kid? For me, it was mainstays like Curious George and Amelia Bedelia. I bet to this day, Don Freeman's 1968 classic Corduroy, the story of a stuffed bear and his quest to find his missing button in a large department store, could probably bring a tear to my eye. I remember checking out these books from my local library around kindergarten age, and the thrill it gave me to pick out my own stuff, to escape with and follow certain characters, or to even ask a librarian for help in finding just the right story. Thankfully, libraries haven't died out with technological progress, but instead have evolved and reimagined themselves to serve their communities better. Books still play a major role, but Wi-Fi access, downloads to individual devices, and establishing a true neighborhood community through events and programming are also part of the puzzle. The Chicago Public Library celebrated its 150th anniversary this month, and at the same time, national headlines show a country divided on access to certain material, especially for children. The Associated Press reports that in 2022, the American Library Association saw 1,200 attempts to ban or restrict reading material for children in school or public libraries. That's the most since the ALA began logging such data two decades ago. I'm Jim Hankey, and this week we're checking out how Illinois is handling this debate and the way libraries are reacting to equally vocal demands to lose or keep certain literature. Let's get looped in, Chicago. You've probably heard stories on air about pushes for book bans in various areas of the country, some louder than others. One of the latest has been in Miami-Dade County, Florida, where it took just one parent voicing concern to get The Hill We Climb by American poet Amanda Gorman restricted. The Hill We Climb is a poem published as a short book that Gorman read at President Biden's inauguration in 2021. On certain pages, the parent cited indirect hate messages and also claimed that the piece was not educational, fearing it would confuse and indoctrinate students. Amanda recently had this to say on CBS This Morning, about what's fueling recent book bans in general, not just her own work. There's this huge argument that it's about protecting and sheltering our children from themes that are just too advanced from them. But when you look at the majority of the books that have actually been banned, it's more about creating a bookshelf that doesn't represent the diverse facets of America. So last week at the historic Harold Washington Library in the Loop, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker signed into law House Bill 2789, which, to briefly summarize, essentially stops the ability for books to be banned in the state of Illinois by public libraries. 
Here's a portion of his speech the day of the signing. Now, I want our children to learn our true history, warts and all. I want them to become critical thinkers, exposed to ideas that they disagree with, proud of what our nation has overcome, and thoughtful about what comes next. WBBM reporter Brandon Eisen attended that bill signing, and I wanted to get his take on the details of the bill. I wonder if Governor Pritzker signing this bill uh, so in tandem with the recent 150th anniversary of the Chicago Library wasn't by accident, maybe. It seems like a good way to bring focus to what the library has been for citizens of Chicago over the decades. It could be interpreted that way. Uh, the Friday before he had signed something like 90 bills into law, but then he hang, hangs on to this one until Monday. You know, the Chicago Public Library actually was initiated in January of 1873. And then the first public librarian wasn't uh, brought around until October of 1873. So I don't know if there's necessarily any specific correlation with that date, um, but it definitely was part of the celebration. I think that there was some symbolism behind doing the signing in the largest public library in North America by square footage. It's not by books, like the Library of Congress has a lot more books. There's a, a University of Chicago has more books in their library, but by square footage, sheer square footage, uh, the Chicago Public Library is the largest in North America. Wow, yeah, that's amazing. You know, the headlines for this signing essentially say that it's a ban, it's kind of a play on words, like a ban on banning books, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people, you know, private citizens can't attempt to still do that. What does this bill actually say is the action that would be taken if bans were to still be attempted? Really what the legislation says is that it changes the language in the current law with, with libraries in the state, and it changes it from the use of the word public library to library. Um, so that kind of broadens the scope of the state's reach when these libraries, whether they be public, whether they be uh, university libraries, uh, any other type of private library, when they're asking for grant funding from the state, uh, this just gives them an opportunity to say, well, are you adhering to these specific rules? And the specific rules are in the Library Bill of Rights, which is set up by the American Library Association, which is actually headquartered in Chicago. But these specific rules, really all that um, Secretary of State Alexei Giannoulias, who also serves as the state librarian, uh, really the only thing he kept repeating is that this Bill of Rights states that reading materials should not be removed or restricted because of partisan or personal disapproval. So the libraries, whether they be public libraries, private libraries, other library entities, uh, need to adhere by that, or they need to come up with their own statement uh, that kind of fits within that realm in order to receive state grant funding. And there was uh, over 60 books proposed to be removed from libraries last year in Illinois alone. I'm not sure how this law and Secretary of State Alexei Giannoulias wasn't clear on how this law actually protects uh, individual librarians or the, the library entity itself from, you know, extremist groups or just any group that wants to come in and have a book removed. Brandon brings up a valid point that we'll get more information on later. The physical protection of librarians and staff in the event that protests about the banning of books turn violent. 
But as far as this law that was signed, it just looks like they're going to withhold state funding from libraries that cater to city ordinance. It looks like a lot of it is just kind of setting uh, the template for you know, moving forward and kind of exploring all of these ideas and how those could be addressed. Well, right. It seems like the whole point of the library from the very beginning has been to grant access and not necessarily take it away. But also reading this bill, it seems like it gives the libraries maybe some leverage to say, hey, we don't want to lose our funding. So then the onus then is is back on the private citizen to take this maybe further up the ladder. I don't know if I'm right, but it, it almost takes the ability out of the library's hands because they don't want to lose that funding. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the same way I looked at it too. You know, I just had this this image in my head of a, of a librarian sitting there with, with their hands up in the air saying, I can't do this or I'll, I'll lose my funding. But for me, it seems like it puts a lot of pressure on the librarian themselves. And, and really the only ammunition a librarian has is, well, I'll lo- lose my funding. But uh, as far as funding goes, the last fiscal year, the Secretary of State's office uh, awarded like over 1,600 grants to Illinois libraries and that was over $62 million. Uh, 97% of those grants were awarded to public and school libraries. And uh, the public libraries received about 900 grants, school libraries about 700. What do, you, what do you think the role of the library system in Chicago in 2023 is? You know, all this news of, of the Pritzker signing and everything, but yet the neighborhood library maybe doesn't hold the, the clout that it did in, in the 80s and 70s and maybe going back further. But, you know, what does what having access to a library mean for the city of Chicago, do you think, currently? The evolution of, of public libraries, whether it be the Chicago Public Library or libraries, you know, across the country or across the world, um, they're actually becoming more important, more relevant. In some areas of Chicago, the Chicago Public Libraries is the biggest provider of access to Wi-Fi access to internet, access to job training and education and resources in, in that aspect. You know, the, the relevancy is still there. It's just changing. The Chicago Public Library has been a cornerstone of the city's culture for 150 years. But how does this bill affect school libraries that, as Brandon mentioned, have received about 700 grants within the last fiscal year? Do schools have the ultimate say on what they can and can't have on the shelves, despite Governor Pritzker's bill signing? After the break, we'll learn more about that aspect and a bit about the history of banned books in Chicago. Stay tuned. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. In the last segment, Brandon and I touched on what this bill could mean for the possible protection of librarians and staff over book bans. During the bill signing, Secretary of State Alexei Janulius had this to say over the rising climate of the debate and how it potentially translates into a safety concern. These radical attacks on our libraries have divided our communities and our librarians have been harassed, threatened, and intimidated 
for simply doing their jobs. For more on this part of the issue, I reached out to Chris Brown, commissioner of the Chicago Public Library. He explained to me that along with CPL staff, he's responsible for ensuring the library services are at the cutting edge of technology and that their 81 locations are adequately responding to the needs of the neighborhoods that they serve. In 2023, that means going far beyond the lending out of books or resource materials. It means providing social works to assist those in the greater community. Here's Chris with more about the CPL's mission. There was a really interesting Pew Research study that showed that millennials are actually the power users of libraries, which is is fascinating. I think we are still engaging each generation in in new ways. The way that I like to think about it is we we do a lot around educational milestones. So we're supporting families and parents and making sure that those kids develop a love of reading. The reality, though, is that there are there are neighborhoods throughout our city where we have upwards of 45% of households that do not have broadband access. How do you, as a student and as a family, have a digital life and get all your employment work done, all your job duties done, your student duties done, and your quality of life? How does that play out when... 45% of the households in the neighborhood don't have broadband. Right. So we're the largest provider of broadband and free computer access in the city of Chicago. From your angle and your position, do you see the call for book bans trending during particular timeframes? Like from an outsider's perspective, perhaps it's election years. Is, is there anything happening socially where suddenly there seems to be a push or more discussion at least about particular titles or genres or a child's access to them? Normally, I would say yes, but I think over the past couple of years, we've been seeing this ramping up trend in book challenges and attempted book banning, and those haven't necessarily been in presidential election cycles. And so I think libraries are getting wrapped up in this issue, but the reality is we've been here before. So Chicago Public Library in, in 1936, we were the first library in the nation to put forward an intellectual freedom statement. And that was during the McCarthyism, Red Scare, Witch Hunt period. And so I think these book challenges and book bans, while in the moment they are frightening and they're seeking to silence primarily BIPOC and LGBTQ plus voices, they're also a time where we get to reaffirm our values, what we're committed to, reaffirming our, our First Amendment, what our constitutional beliefs are. And I believe we're going to be able to look back on this time period and say, we've responded and reaffirmed why we have access to these materials. And I think you can see that in Governor Pritzker's legislation. Since Chris works day in and day out in the Chicago library system, I wanted him to help further delineate the differences between public, private, and school libraries for me to further understand what falls under the jurisdiction of this bill. Unlike public libraries where parents are often there with their child to help guide what they're picking up, it's tougher to navigate what kids read or check out from their school library because parents aren't there. So what does House Bill 2789 mean for libraries inside elementary schools? I think you're bringing up an important point what you're describing about your relationship with your child, your 
conversations with them about what they're checking out, what they're borrowing. That ultimately is what we're looking for, for families to have those conversations, to decide what material they want in their home, what material is appropriate in their mind. We just want to make sure that we're not making those decisions for other children. I think you're right that more of the challenges are happening in school libraries. There's sensitivity and concern about what histories are being taught in schools. And I think what's especially dangerous and, and why for me, it, there is no distinction between them is that we're building up norms within our youth. We're, we're talking about the demarcation between a public library, a private library and a school library. I think it's confusing for some of just the general public. For a kid, I don't think they're going to register that either. It's just, I'm at a library. I can't get in certain material here. During our discussion, Chris informed me of a recent vote by the Missouri House of Representatives. The legislation would cut all funding to public libraries as part of the state's annual budget. And while not fully passed as of this recording, it's now awaiting a state Senate vote. And, and that didn't single out just school libraries. That was also inclusive of public libraries, that threat. How are we to ensure that what we normalize in our school libraries wouldn't be pushed for in our public libraries? For the state of Illinois, do we know how some of these attempted book bans get started? Is it enough for one parent simply to raise their hand and that's enough for a school or a public library to say, okay, now we have to you know, put this on a certain list? Or what are you seeing or hearing on how these efforts actually start? Unfortunately, they are not just a single parent bringing up their concern. And that was really what I saw in my early career. When we would see a book challenge, it would literally be someone a little bit confused. Why did the library have this book? Why did the library have this movie? I have concern about its content. And then we would usually go through our collection development policy. We would review the item and we would also share with the patron usually some of the reviews that this item had gotten that oftentimes we're as librarians, we're purchasing this material because it has been deemed to have this cultural or educational value and has multiple reviews. Librarians are, are very diligent as public stewards of, of tax dollars. We, we see ourselves as, as investing in material that will be for the greater good of our communities. Now we're witnessing something much more organized. It's more of a, of a social media campaign or a grassroots campaign. I think oftentimes more suburban or conservative areas where um, those library directors or those library boards are getting pressure to remove certain material. The Nicola Hannah-Jones 1619 project, and you mentioned Amanda Gorman's poem, these are OA laureates and journalists. These are incredibly credentialed professionals who are having their work targeted as if it's something that is misinformation or damaging to audiences. I think we're in a little bit of a new frontier. What is that going to be like for those kids if these book bans continue, if this censorship wins? What is that going to be like for those youth who saw 
their identities and their history silenced as they move into adulthood, as they become leaders and contributors to our future country. I think that's the scary thing for me. Going back to my earlier conversation with Brandon, I wanted to ask Commissioner Brown if my understanding of the bill was correct, that this isn't really a punishment for libraries that don't comply, but more so leverage for them so that they can inform concerned parents that their hands are legally tied and that their complaints will need to move higher up the state ladder. I, I think that's accurate. I think it's it's a little bit more of a deterrence. It's a message that if you're actively pushing for these book bans, the additional funding from the state is potentially in jeopardy. And that's an interesting tension. Is it going to be that those libraries effectively say, hey, we're not going to go there. We're not going to push for remo removal of, of these items. Or are we going to see something like Missouri and their secretary of state where their response is, yeah, let's defund libraries. I'm hoping it acts as a deterrence. And it, we don't get to a point where people are actively saying, I'm okay with this, with defunding my library. This isn't on the same wavelength, but in January of last year in the city of St. Charles, that library had to shut down in-person services due to a swath of 35, 40 people coming in unmasked um, at the time where masks were required in the library and kind of shutting things down. So I, I bring that up with this next question regarding the safety of librarians, right? Where I don't know if there's anything in this bill, if you can speak to, that really protects librarians from either random potentials for violence, uh, protection from extremist groups, that sort of thing. That's really hard to do. Much like uh, the debates about school protection, we also can't have a police force at every library to, to make sure everyone's following the rules. So are, are there any specifics in these laws or, you know, is... In a scenario where a librarian is being pressured by patrons, a specific librarian, let's say, like, are there protections for that librarian? And if there aren't now, do you see that being something in the future? I look at the safety of librarians right now as an incredibly important and unique moment. We just had a library journal conference this year where there was a convening all about library safety, really looking at what is happening in our spaces. And I think what you're talking about is an instance of threats of violence or intimidation or harassment for fulfilling your inclusive mission. Take Fort Worth, Texas, for example. Last year at their central library, criminal trespass warnings were issued by police six times more often than the year prior. The ALA even has an entire area of their website dedicated to supporting library patrons and workers who have been subject to harmful conduct. Librarians are really dealing with these uncertain threats. And just as people, uncertainty is not um, a place we like to be. And, and you're right, we can't just have police in our libraries all the time. There's other duties that they have. A lot of libraries do have security. The Chicago Public Library has security in sight. But I think libraries need to be very clear with our municipalities, with our city leaders, that these are the kind of threats we're getting. And we need to talk about how do we respond to them? What are credible threats? But there's not anything in this legislation that really precludes those threats. And I think in some way, 
it's a lot of gray. Some of this gets to other people's First Amendment rights, their ability to say, I don't agree with this. And I think if they want to say that and they want to come protest, that's their freedom. And we also can't impinge on that. I think we do have to guard against credible threats of violence where we need to work with our law enforcement and our elected officials most closely. Absolutely. Commissioner Brown, thank you so much for coming on Looped in Chicago today. I appreciate some of your insight on this issue. Oh, thank you, Jim. This episode of Looped in Chicago was hosted by me, Jim Hankey, and produced and edited by myself and Lizzie Baumgartner, with additional recording by Chris Lopez. Thank you for tuning in this week, and you can stay subscribed to the program on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen, and be sure to follow us on social media at WBBM Podcasts. We'll keep you looped in again right here next week. See you then. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.